Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Adam, and we are so glad that you are here. Maybe you're like, why did we even watch this in church? Well, we are in a series right now called Unoffendable. I'm not even sure if unoffendable is a real word. It has like that red squiggly line when I type it in pages. But I think you get the idea of maybe what we're talking about here. That offense happens. People are going to do offensive things. And there's no way that you can escape it. The only way to get away from offense in your life is to be with Jesus in heaven. And obviously none of us are there yet. But we're having this conversation because even though offense happens, I think that if we can have the right mindset, if we can have the right heart space, we don't have to get as worked up about it. We don't have to get as offended. Offense is a choice, but how we deal with that and how offended uh, we get is a choice in how we deal with an event that happens. And so as we get into things this morning, I want to get some interaction here, and I'll put a scenario up here on the screen, and it's going to be kind of like a survey with multiple choice, and I just want you to raise your hand for how you would respond to that scenario. All right. Now, this isn't about like just raising your hand for the church answer, finding the right answer. This is being honest with yourself about how you would actually respond. And it's all hypothetical. So maybe something doesn't fit your life, but it's about how you would respond. So here's the first one. Someone makes an offensive comment on your social media post. How many of you would send a dig right back at them? Oh, we got one honest person in the room here. Two, all right. How many of you would just ignore the comment? All right, most of us. How many of you would send a positive reply? Yeah, all right, good, good. All right, here's another one. Uh, your spouse doesn't follow through with the plans that you both agreed on. This has never happened to me. Just, just kidding. <laughs> all right. What do you do? How many of you would point out the other times when your spouse has not followed through on plans? All right, few. How many of you would have a conversation about how it made you feel? All right. How many of you would just give them the silent treatment? Yeah. All right. This is real talk, all right? We might have to have marriage counseling after this morning's message. Here's another one. Uh, your coworker makes another mean joke about you. How many of you would just fake laugh at it? All right. How many of you would roll your eyes and cross your arm and just give them a look like, that's not that funny? All right. <laughs> How many of you would say something kind to them later that day? Yeah, all right. That's good. All right, here's another one. You find out that you are being slandered by an ex. Now, maybe you've never been divorced or your dating days are way behind you, but this is just a hypothetical. How would you respond? How many of you would call out your ex? Yep. How many of you would pray for your ex? A few of you. How many of you would explain to other people why your ex cannot be trusted? <laughs> All right. Yeah, here's another one. Uh, your spouse uses sarcasm and you aren't laughing. So how many of you would keep the sarcasm going? Like you just one-up them. Two can play at this game. A few of you. 
How many of you would just straight up call them a jerk? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Or how many of you would ask them what's really bothering them? And I have to clarify in a non-sarcastic way, not like, well, what's bothering you? Like, you actually care about them. How many of you would do that? A few of you. All right, this is the last one. Someone falls through on a promise again. So how many of you would email Kurt at kurtg at bwater.org? How many of you would just vent to all of your friends? All right. How many of you would show grace to that person? A few of you. Yeah. Man, this is... This is real life stuff. And all of the answers that we talked about for these scenarios, I think they kind of fit into one of three categories. We have the mean and rude response to offense. We have the acceptable, justifiable, like nobody will give you a hard time if that's how you respond, response. And then there's the over the top, nice and spiritual response. And so this morning, we're going to be talking about how we should respond to offense. What, what kind of standard does God call us to? Now, and before we get into what God's word has to say, I just got to tell you straight up, I don't have this all together in my life. And specifically this week, I was like, God, I don't even want to write this message. Like there's some things I got to work on in my own heart. And I think that it was part of God's plan for me to preach this message, not because I have all the answers for me to give it to you like I have this all together, because I really don't. And I think that God has me preaching this message this morning because I need to preach this message to myself first. And as we're talking through these things, if you're like, this is really hard stuff to actually apply to my life. Let me just tell you, I am right there with you. Like, this is some tough stuff. But I really think that God's word is the path to life. And like, if we can take this seriously and follow God's ways, it is so much better than just going down our own path. And so this morning, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. And if you want to turn there in your Bibles, you can go right to... 1 Samuel chapter 25, we're going to start out in the, in the beginning of this chapter, and we'll also have it up here on the screen. So this is about a historical event that took place right around 3,000 years ago, and it's about the life of King David, but before he became king over Israel. At this time, King Saul was sitting on the throne of Israel, and he was hunting down David, trying to take his life. Because David was the commander in Saul's armies, and God gave David a lot of victories. He'd be like, well, why does Saul have a problem with that? He's a great officer. Well, the problem is that David was growing in popularity and influence, and Saul felt threatened. And so Saul has an army of men chasing down David. And David is kind of hiding out in the wilderness. And he has his own mini army of about 600 men with him in the wilderness. And so in verse 2, we're going to get into this story about what happens while David and his men are living in the wilderness. In chapter 25, verse 2, it says, a certain man in Maon who had property there at Carmel was very wealthy. 
He had a thousand goats and three thousand sheep, which he was shearing in Carmel. His name was Nabal, and his wife's name was Abigail. She was an intelligent and beautiful woman, but her husband was surly and mean in his dealings. He was a Calebite. While David was in the wilderness, he heard that Nabal was shearing sheep. So he sent ten young men and said to them, Go up to Nabal at Carmel and greet him in my name. Say to him, Long life to you, good health to you and your household, and good health to all that is yours. Now I hear that it is sheep shearing time. When your shepherds were with us, we did not mistreat them. And the whole time they were at Carmel, nothing of theirs was missing. Ask your own servants and they will tell you. Therefore, be favorable towards me and my men, since we have come at a festive time. Please give your servants and your son David whatever you can find for them. So there's three main characters in this story. We have David, who's on the run from Saul with his 600 men. We have this guy named Nabal, who's very wealthy and apparently kind of a mean guy. And then there's his wife, Abigail, who's described as being intelligent and beautiful. Now, I was thinking about how wealthy Nabal really is and trying to get a reference point for exactly how much wealth he had. So I was flipping through the Bible and I came across this in Job 1.3. And now Job lived a few hundred years before Nabal. So this isn't a perfect comparison, but it says that Job owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. So this is what it takes to be the most wealthy person in that corner of the world during that time. They're like back in these days, they wouldn't classify somebody as like a millionaire or a billionaire. They just tell you how many livestock and possessions that they have. And so uh, Job is like top of the top wealthy. He has 7,000 sheep. Nabal doesn't have 7,000. He has 3,000 sheep, 1,000 goats, but he's doing pretty well for himself. Like by today's standards, I think Nabal would have been a millionaire. And so you would think that since he's so wealthy, he would have some room to spare. He could have some room to be generous. And all the while that David and his men are camped out in the wilderness, they've been protecting Nabal's sheep and his shepherds from any kind of attacks, from bandits or anything like that. And nobody asked David to do this. He just did it out of the kindness of his heart. And so he thought, all right, I've done a favor for Nabal and I kind of need a favor. I think that it's pretty reasonable for him to, re to grant this request of giving some supplies to my men at this time. And so David sends his men to Nabal, and we're going to read about Nabal's response to David's request in verse 9. It says, When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. 
Why should I take my bread and water and the meat I have slaughtered for my shearers and give it to men coming from who knows where? And David's men turned around and went back. And when they arrived, they reported every word. So Nabal, he flat out refuses David's request for supplies. But on top of that, he also insults David, basically calling him a runaway slave. David is the man who's about to become the king of Israel. And this is just kind of a low blow that, that Nabal is swinging at David here. And David's been going through some pretty tough things in his life up to this point. I mean, he was on the run from Saul. Saul was trying to kill him. And then just the chapter before this story, there was this town that was being invaded. And David went in and protected this town. But then he had to leave because God revealed to David that those people would betray him and turn him into Saul. So it's just like one thing after another. People trying to kill him, betray him. And for the most part, he's been able to keep his cool up until this moment. And now David is getting super fired up. In verse 13, David said to his men, Each of you, strap on your swords. So they did, and David strapped on his as well. About 400 men went up with David, while 200 stayed with the supplies. David's been wronged, and now he is going on a hunting expedition. Like he is going to make Nabal and all of his servants pay for the way that he had been treated. And things are about to get really messy because Nabal has a lot of servants. It wasn't the kind of deal where Nabal just had servants to bring him grapes on a platter or do laundry for him. It's kind of like running a business. He has shepherds taking care of his sheep. He would have had other servants taking care of things around the house. And so things are about to be really messy. There are a lot of innocent lives on the line right now. And as David and his men are on their way to seek revenge from Nabal, word reaches Nabal's wife, Abigail, about what's going on. And a servant fills Abigail in on the situation and is like, David and his guys, they've been nothing but kind to Nabal. Because of them, they've kept our flocks and our shepherds safe. But then Nabal treated them really terribly. And now there's this doom that's just hanging over our heads. And there's no way we can even talk to Nabal about it. He's a wicked man. He's just looking out for himself. He doesn't know how to deal with this situation. And so acting so quick, what Abigail does is she gets together a bunch of food supplies. She loads it up on donkeys and she sends it with some servants to go meet David. And then she followed after those donkeys to go and talk to David herself. Yeah, Abigail was going on a, rescue, on a rescue mission. Like this is a messy situation. There has been a wrong that needs to be made right. So finally, she comes up on David. And when she meets up with David, this is right after David was just telling all of his men it's been useless, all my watching over this fellow's property in the wilderness so that nothing was missing. He has paid me back evil for good. 
May God deal with David, be it ever so severely, if by morning I leave alive one male of all who belong to him. David is ready, ready to kill every single male servant that is within Nabal's household. But then Abigail comes up on David, and in verse 23 it says, When Abigail saw David, she quickly got off her donkey and bowed down before David with her face to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention, my Lord, to that wicked man, Nabal. He's just like his name. His name means fool, and folly goes with him. As for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent. And now, my Lord, as surely as the Lord your God lives, and as you live, since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed and from avenging yourself with your own hands, may your enemies and all who are intent on harming my Lord be like Nabal. And let this gift which your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the men who follow you. Do you guys catch what Nabal's name means? It means fool. I don't think his parents were setting him up for success when they named him fool. Like, all right, son, you got a bright future ahead of you. We're going to call you fool. But I also don't think it's a coincidence that his name means fool. It's not like it just happened to be that way. I think that was strategic by God. Like when we step back and look at the big picture of this story, like yes, God was working in that moment, but I think God is setting all of this up for us to learn. Like there is a lot for us to learn in how to deal with offenses. And when Abigail comes to David and just pleads with him to not take vengeance into his own hands, in a lot of ways, she's referring back to something that the prophet Moses said in the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses wrote this down, but it's really the words of God here. And God says, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And this verse is, again, quoted in the New Testament by Paul in Romans, where, he's, where Paul is talking about not repaying evil for evil, but doing good to those who wrong us. And what's happening here is, is David was stepping into God's job, God's role of dealing out justice for wrong. David was taking it upon himself to repay Nabal and his household for the wrong that was committed against him. But this is God's job. And thankfully, because of Abigail, David sees the path that he's on and he realizes that this is not the right path. In verse 32, David said to Abigail, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who has sent you today to meet me. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Otherwise, as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, who has kept me from harming you, if you had not come quickly to meet me, not one male belonging to Nabal would have been left alive by daybreak. And when David accepted from her hand what she had brought to him and said, go home in peace, I have heard your words and granted your request. 
And thankfully, David sees where this was going. He turns around, he realizes that it's not his place to judge Nabal and his servants because of Nabal's sin. And because of Abigail and her going on this rescue mission, she saved the lives of all of these innocent servants. And in the end of this story, it says that God struck Nabal and he died. God judged Nabal for his sin, but he didn't need David to do that. And I think the lesson that we get from this whole passage here is that when you are offended, go on a rescue mission, not a hunting expedition. Go on a rescue mission, not a hunting expedition. And when we are offended, there's at least two choices that we have. We can choose to be right. And what I mean by that is prove just how right you are and how wrong somebody else is. I mean, that's what David was trying to do. He was trying to prove how right he was for doing or for responding to Nabal in the way that he was about to. He was about to make Nabal pay. And I think, unfortunately, in this world that we live in, we could get a lot of advice where if you're wronged, other people would say, yeah, but you, you just got to stand up for yourself. You can't take that. You got to protect your ego. You need to not let somebody walk all over you. You got to give them a piece of your mind. Or in those times when we're offended, it's so easy to just find an audience of people who will listen to you and just tell them about how right you are and how awful and wrong somebody else is. And sometimes what we, the, what we wanna prove in being right isn't obviously wrong. Like it's kind of accepted by the people around us. Like in this story, as far as we know, nobody in David's army confronted David and was like, hey, David, maybe God doesn't want you to go marching in and kill all of these innocent people. Maybe we should leave this in God's hands. They're like, all right, you gave us the word. We got our swords. Let's go. But I think what God is calling us to is to not just prove how right we are, but to live in a way that is righteous because we can be right, but not be righteous. Somebody else could be 100% wrong in the way that they offended you. But once you're offended, then you have the choice. How are you going to respond to that offense? Are you going to be righteous in the way that you respond to that person who is in the wrong? Or are you going to repay evil for evil? So we can also choose to rescue, which is what Abigail did in this story. Like when she found out what was going on, she didn't just go to her husband and complain to him about how he treated David's men and what he should have done better. She also didn't go around all of the servants just calling them to grab their swords and fight against David. She didn't try to cover up the fact that there was a wrong. She didn't try to just sweep things under the rug or protect Nabal. She saw that there was a wrong and she did the best that she could to make that wrong right. She loaded up that supplies. She took it to David's men. And she had a heart of trying to get David on the right path where he wouldn't take vengeance into his own hands. 
And so those verses that uh, Paul was talking about where he, he quotes this idea of vengeance is in Romans 13, or I'm sorry, 12, 17, where Paul says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, this is the verse in Deuteronomy, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, he will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If your enemy is thirsty, give him something to drink. Like that coworker that makes a mean joke about you again. It's basically saying, buy them a coffee. And I think that this is the over-the-top, nice spiritual response to offense. I also see that this is what God is calling us to do, to be over-the-top, gracious and loving to people who have wronged us. And that is so contrary to the way that most other people live. I mean, most other people kind of go by the, like, they do this to you, well, then you're justified in doing that. And we don't have to take this stuff seriously. If we don't take this seriously, then we're just going to fit right in with the rest of the world. But if we do take this seriously and we show grace, love, forgiveness, and mercy, then our lives and the way that we respond to things is a picture of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. Because the gospel is primarily a rescue response to offenses. In 2 Corinthians 5.18, it says, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. At one point in all of our lives, we were enemies of God. And it's not because we woke up one morning and we're like, I want to be a bad person or I want to be an enemy of God. But the truth is that all of us have sin in our lives and our sin is offensive to God. It goes, every, it goes against everything that God is, his good and perfect character. And because of this sin in our lives, it puts us at odds with God where we are his enemies. But Jesus came to this earth lived the perfect life, died on the cross, and paid the price for our sin so that if we place our faith in what Jesus has done for us and who he is, then we can have forgiveness of our sins. Where the blood of Jesus covers everything wrong that we have done. And when that happens, our sin is no longer a barrier between us and a relationship with God. We go from being enemies of God to friends of God. And that's what reconciliation is. And if you are a Christian, if you have been forgiven by Jesus, 
then you have this mission of reconciliation, of pointing other people to the love, the grace, and the forgiveness that they can find in Jesus. And I think one of the key ways that we can do this in our lives is to model in our behaviors how we respond when other people wrong us and showing the kind of grace, love, mercy, and forgiveness that Jesus has shown us to other people. And so as we wrap up this morning, I just wanna walk us through some steps in application. And the first one is thinking about who is that person who has offended you? Maybe it's one big thing that you have so much trouble getting over, or maybe it's a pattern of offenses and it's just building up and building up. And I'm asking this question just so that we can get to the second step. And that second step is to pray for that person. If they don't know Jesus, pray that God works in their heart to know Jesus as their savior and that God would change them from the inside out. And even if they are a Christian, just pray that God would soften their heart. And I don't have it written here on the screen, but I think just as importantly is to pray for your own heart. Uh, This last week, something that I've been praying a lot comes from Psalm 139, where David says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Because even if I think that somebody else is in the wrong, I have to work so hard to guard my own heart. Maybe I'm right, but I can become unrighteous in my response to that offense. And so it's so important to pray that God would help us to keep our hearts in the right place. And then lastly, what is one act of kindness that you can do for that person? To show them the love, the grace, and the forgiveness that God has shown you. And maybe you think to yourself, but they don't deserve that at all. And that's probably true. But none of us deserve the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness that God showed us when he sent his only son to die in our place. And if we can do this for other people, we can show them what God has done in our own lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being such a good God. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, and your forgiveness that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And God, help us to leave revenge um, in your hands and not try to take over your job. God, help us to show the love, the grace, and the mercy to people uh, the way that you showed it to us. And I don't know what everybody here in this room is going through. Um, the offenses that they are dealing with. Maybe they feel so alone. Maybe they feel like you aren't coming through for them to rescue them. God, I just ask that you would sustain them in this time. I ask that you would work in the hearts of people who have hurt us, but I ask, God, that you would work in our own hearts. Please, God, lead us in the way everlasting and help us to walk in your ways and give us the strength to do that. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.